we're now entering into a new series. We call this Advent, and Advent is a traditional term for the Christian season uh, among traditional Christians. And so we're a very non-traditional church, but we've tried to grab hold of this ancient tradition as a way of making Christmas about Jesus. We've got this holiday we call Christmas, and it's celebrated all over the world by Christians and non-Christians. It's really pretty crazy when you think about it. We have a holiday, Christians have a holiday that non-Christians celebrate because they love it so much. So Advent, as we practice it at Grace Bible Church, is a way for us to kind of grab hold of this concept of meditating and celebrating on the birth and arrival of Jesus and kind of slow it down and make it more about Jesus. That's really what we're aiming for. The word Advent literally means the arrival of a notable person or event. That's all that Advent means. It means the arrival of something really important, and we're celebrating at Christmas time the arrival of Jesus into the world, the incarnation, God taking on flesh, being born as a baby. So that's what we're celebrating. Now, Christians, again, I just talked about this with the pandemic and COVID, among Christians and their practice at Christmas, we have all kinds of different practices. So we're trying to maintain unity and say, yes, of course, the Bible does not teach any particular festival practice. That's very clear. And Christians have to be very careful that we don't bind other people's conscience and say, you have to practice the way I practice this celebration, right? We don't force each other to feast the way that we want to feast. So we're suggesting as a Christian church together, hey, here's an idea. A lot of you come from non-Christian backgrounds. A lot of you come from backgrounds without Christian traditions. Here's some ideas that we're giving to you of some ways to celebrate, slow down, and ponder and meditate on who Jesus is. We have a little handout for you. You can go online and find this. It's our Advent devotional. It's got Bible readings, and it helps you slow down and follow the themes that we're going to be following for the month of December. Hope, love, joy, and peace. This is an opportunity for you to slow down, be devotional, and focus on Jesus in a time of chaos and busyness and craziness and the commercialization of, Christ, of Christmas. Another book I want to recommend to you that's talked about in this guide is The Adventure of Christmas by Lisa Welchel. And this book basically goes through a lot of the random American Christian traditions and kind of follows the historical line back to this is why Christians started doing this weird thing to celebrate Jesus. Because a lot of us have these traditions and we're like, I don't, I don't know where this came from, right? My grandparents did it, so I did it. Um, but this book is kind of helpful. It just kind of helps you trace the line back to, oh, some Christian in like 1850 or 1900 or 1755, they came up with this idea as a way to celebrate Jesus. So this is a helpful book when you're trying to reclaim traditions in a Christ-centered way. So a couple of uh, guides there. We've got, those of you in person, these paper guides are in the lobby, but you can also get them online. They even have coloring pages. They've got poems. Poems? Is it poem? I never know how to say that word right. Poem, poem, poem. Uh, poem, poem. Uh, and we've got, what else do we have? We've got hymns in there. So anyway, take advantage of that Advent devotional guide. Um, so here are two practical reasons, right? So uh, we can't command you to celebrate Christmas, but here are two practical suggestions I want to give you. And this doesn't just go to Christmas. This goes to just creating your own Christian traditions in your family and your home. Two practical ideas. Uh, one is inward and one is outward. The inward is slowing down seasonally, a time that's crazy for everybody else, slowing down and saying, I'm going to manage this biblically and in a Christ-centered way. So slowing down, kind of taking control of it in your own home and saying, this is how we're going to observe and celebrate Jesus in our home, right? 
So that's the kind of inward motivation, spiritual formation motivation. And then secondly, there's an outward motivation of when the whole world is celebrating Christ, but they don't know it. If you come up with your own family Christ-centered celebrations, then it gives you a way to communicate in what your friends see you doing, but also in the conversations you can have about why you're doing what you do. Does that make sense? All right, now we're going to look at the Bible together. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. For the month of December, as we look at the themes of hope, love, joy, and peace, we're going to be following the birth narrative, the beginning of Matthew, basically chapter 1 and chapter 2, chopping it into bits. We're going to start with Matthew 1, 1 through 17. And as we ponder and think about the idea of hope that comes at the advent of Jesus, right? This is the big idea, hope. Jesus gives us hope. Why do we need hope? I want to start with, historically, what was going on in the gap between Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. There was a 400-year gap there. Have you ever suffered in silence? Have you ever wanted to hear something from somebody, and yet there was silence? Um, Maybe you're waiting to hear back from a job application, and there's just silence. And you're dying to know if they got it. You don't know if you should ask them again. You already emailed twice. Maybe you should just let it go. There's silence. Maybe a loved one is angry with you, and they're not talking to you for a few hours or a few days. And you're suffering in silence. Maybe you have a professor and there's an online assignment that you don't understand or a teacher and you're emailing and trying to ask questions, but there's just silence. You don't know what to do. Well, the people of God were suffering through a 400-year gap of silence. There were all these prophets speaking to God's people. They were bound in scrolls and books. We call that the Old Testament. It ended at Malachi About a hundred years after Daniel, we just finished a study of Daniel, they were coming back from their exile, they were coming back into Jerusalem. Remember what Daniel prophesied? He said they're going to have a hard time, and that hard time is going to last for hundreds of years, and part of what made that time so hard is there was 400 years of silence from the prophecies of Malachi to the arrival of Jesus in the book of Matthew. This is where we pick up in Matthew chapter 1. And we'll read 1 through 17. A couple of key words as I read the text that I want you to think about. Genealogy and father are both the same Greek root, and that Greek root is Genesis. So your mind, if you were a first audience, you know, reading this in the original language, your mind would be going back to the book of Genesis. All the phrases in Genesis, these are the, uh, the genealogy of Adam and the genealogy of Abraham, right? You would have these lists in Genesis. Well, this is kind of falling into that pattern. All right. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Minadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, 
And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation or exile to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Akim. And Akim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Methan. And Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So we just read a long genealogy. For most of you, if you were Bible readers and you're honest, these are the sections of the Bible you sometimes skip, right? Anybody raise their hand? Be honest with me. Some of you do. Okay, not everybody, but some of you. Sometimes you skip this. I found that this genealogy actually has more of a pattern to it than most of the other genealogical lists that we find in the Old Testament. It's an interesting pattern. I tried to emphasize it with the way I read it, but you had father, 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 by this woman. Father, 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 by this woman. Father, 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 by this woman, right? There was this pattern of these fathers, and again, that word is Genesis, so you've got the genealogy and then the genealogizing by the different family members, and then a mention, a mention of the women, which is really interesting. We'll get to that more as you note the women that are involved. There's also this funny little pattern where he says, oh, by the way, there's a 14, 14, 14 thing going on here, right? Do you remember how important the numbers 7 and 7 times 7 and 70 times 7 was in the book of Daniel? 7 is a number of completion. And so you've got double 7, double 7, double 7, and then Jesus comes in the seventh 7, so to speak, the time of fulfillment. Now, the reason those numbers are important are not so much because of like some weird numerology thing, but this is a part of the poetry of the ancient world. So in our culture, we have things like the iambic pentameter of Shakespeare. It's a rhythm, right? It's a rhythm of how things are written. We also have a rhyme scheme sometimes, right? We rhyme certain words. Hebrew poetry repeats concepts. There's a parallelism where you have concept and then a repeat of the concept, concept and the repeat of the concept. Every culture has varieties of poetry, ways that we make things beautiful, ways that we make things feel like Ah, that's complete. It's the way things are supposed to be. If you cook, it's like when things taste good versus when things taste bad and they didn't turn out the way you wanted, right? There's a beauty and an aesthetic there. If you build, there's a kind of building where things look straight and flush and right. And then there's a type of building where it's like, eh, it works, but it's kind of ugly, you know? (laughs) This repetition of the 14s is Matthew, the writer, saying, look at that. Isn't there kind of a poetic beauty to the fulfillments of God? There's also a little minor thing I need to address. There's some skipped generations. 
And so some people, if you're really in the weeds, you might double check and notice they're missing generations. And actually, there's a lot of different explanations for that. The best explanation I heard came hundreds and hundreds of years ago by an early church father that said he understood that to be the prophetic declaration made to Ahab, Ahab, who was very wicked. And Ahab, it was prophesied to him, you're going to have missing generations that aren't going to sit on the throne because you've been so evil. And those are the generations that are missing. So anyway, again, that's not that important, but really it's just the idea of completion. We're to read this and go, ah, this is the way it's supposed to be. Finally, we've been waiting and the times are fulfilled as the New Testament says. I'm going to pray for us, ask God to help us, and then we'll try to look at some of the highlights of this genealogy. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. We confess that there are parts of your word that are harder for us to understand. As modern people, there are things that we just don't get, and we don't say that that's anything wrong with your scriptures, Lord, but that's something deficient in us. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us here Help us to bridge the gap. There are things we don't really get because of our culture, because of our distance, because of our own sometimes laziness. So God, will you meet us here? Will you help us to listen to your word? Sometimes we go long periods feeling like you are silent, but here in your word, Lord, we believe that you're speaking to us. So we thank you for that. We offer you our hearts and our ears, and we pray that you would teach us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we study the Bible because we believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. It's a phrase we use a lot to emphasize that this is not just an academic study. This is not just objective, scientific, to grow our own knowledge. This is a desperate hunger we have to get to know Jesus. We want to know Jesus better. Now, there are parts of the scripture that are harder to understand than others. Next week, we'll return to narrative stories that are very easy for us to connect with. This week, it's a little difficult. It's kind of like a few weeks ago when we were in these apocalyptic visions. We're like, man, I don't know what to do with these apocalyptic visions. But we trust, as it says in 1 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that all Scripture is given to us. It's the words of God. It's breathed out by Him so that we would hear Him and receive what He has to say. So what I want to do is, after those initial observations we made, I want to just focus in on three themes that we get from the double sevens, Right? He's put it in sections for us, right? What are the sections he's given us? He's given us the section of Abraham. He's given us the section of David. And then he's thirdly given us the section of what it says in this text, the deportation. But I said that's the exile, right? We were just talking about the exile in the book of Daniel last several weeks. So we're back again talking about the exile. So three sections that can teach us something about the coming of Jesus, the advent of Jesus, how Jesus brings us hope. So first of all, we'll see as we look at the section of Abraham, that we have hope for the child to defeat evil. Hope for the child to defeat evil. Basically, all of Genesis is about the fulfillment of this promise in Genesis 3.15. Eve, someday you're going to have a baby that's going to crush the dragon's head, the serpent's head. Evil will be destroyed. Someday a human will beat evil in the world. That's the promise of Genesis 3.15. All of Genesis talks about that. Abraham is kind of like the tip of the spear. The promises given to Abraham. Lizzie read some of the stories about the covenants that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15. There are others in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. Abraham shows us, yeah, God is going to fulfill that promise of a child to defeat evil. The second thing we're going to see is hope for the kingdom of glory. We're going to see that in a section about David, right? David's all about the kingdom. Solomon's all about the kingdom. King David, King Solomon, they were the golden years of Israel. They were these pictures of splendor 
that make our imaginations run to what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. They weren't fully fulfilled in David and Solomon. They fell far short of what is to come in King Jesus, the true son of David, the true king of glory. So we hope for a kingdom of glory. And then finally, there's hope for the end of exile. There's hope for the end of exile. Remember when Daniel was praying about the end of the exile, he had the prophecy of Jeremiah. He was like, the exile is going to end in 70 years. Yes, this is awesome. The angel is like, well, kind of. The exile's kind of going to end in 70 years, but really it's going to be 70 times 7. And what the angel was teaching Daniel is the same thing we see fulfilled here. There's a true end to exile that comes only through Christ. The people of Israel might have returned to their land physically, but the full return we're not going to know until we're face to face with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. And that started with the birth of Jesus. All right, so these are the three sections. Number one, hope for the child to defeat evil. Okay, Genesis 3.15, I already mentioned that. It's rooted here in the son of Abraham concept, right? And remember, if you're having a hard time studying scriptures, right, when you get like a a long, quote-unquote, boring genealogy, go to the beginning and go to the end, right? It's going to kind of center you. The beginning, we're like, he's a son of David and a son of Abraham. Okay, that's important. And we come to the end of the section. He's a son of David and a son of Abraham. Okay, this is really important. This section zeroes in verses uh, 1 through, I don't know what it is. I had it on the screen just a minute. Verses 1 through 5. Yeah, verses 1 through 5 zero in on him being a son of Abraham. So again, beginning of Genesis, Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve have sinned. They've turned away from God. They've said, God, we'd rather have your stuff, but we don't want you. And God says, okay, well, I'm cursing the serpent and I'm cursing humanity. Now, because of this humanity, it's going to be harder for you. When you work, there's going to be thorns and thistles. When you raise children, it's going to be painful. And that's basically the only job we have, (laughs) right? That's all humans are here for is to glorify God by raising children and working. That's what we exist for. And it's going to be painful and cursed. It's going to be difficult. But there's this promise given that someday a child is going to come and defeat evil once and for all. In Genesis 3.15, it's worded this way, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, serpent, and hers, but he will crush your head and you will crush his heel. If you're going to be crushed, would you rather have your heel crushed or your head crushed? What do you think? Anybody with basic biology understanding, if you had to choose, you're going to go with heel. I'd rather have a limp than have no head, right? And the promise is that the serpent, the dragon, the devil is going to cause you to limp humanity. But humanity in the end is going to crush the head of the dragon. And that fulfillment continues to be hinted at in the book of Genesis. And then we're disappointed. Here's another leader. Here's another son of Eve. Here's another grandson of Eve. Here's another great grandson of Eve. That's all of Genesis. And then it's not fulfilled. The the promise doesn't come true. It kind of halfway comes true, and then it doesn't come true. There's this longing for it to be finally fulfilled. And God, in Genesis 12, takes Abraham and says, yeah, the world is falling apart. I mean, if you just read Genesis 4 through 11, it's like nothing but sin and failure, basically. It's like, yeah, the entire world fell apart after Adam and Eve sinned. And then, with Abraham, God says, 
I'm going to do this through your family, Abraham. This is the family by which I am going to save the world. This is the family by which all the nations will be blessed. And Abraham has given this specific, um, we'll say, reproduction covenant, right? Abraham's given a covenant. It's called circumcision. It's all about reproduction. Reproduction is a sign of the covenant that God is going to reproduce, going to give children to Israel in such a way that someday, finally, evil will be destroyed. And that's fulfilled in Jesus. And so in this section, verses 1-5, through we see that Jesus is the son of Abraham, but we have these funny little side notes, right? We had father, 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 wife, father, 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 wife. You remember that? Here are a few of the ones that show up in this section. Tamar. You remember the story of Tamar? Tamar, her husband dies. Her second husband refuses to step in as a substitute as the law commands. The father-in-law then deprives her of his third son. And so she has an incestuous relationship dressed as a prostitute with her father-in-law in order to produce a son. A sinful, wicked family tree. Rahab. Rahab was not a part of the people of God. She was a prostitute in Jericho, but she feared God, and so she was redeemed. And she helped the Jews to conquer Jericho and to become everything God designed them to be. Then we have Ruth. Ruth, her husband dies. Her mother-in-law is bitter, but she clings to her mother-in-law nevertheless, hoping in God that her mother-in-law no longer trusts, right? Her mother-in-law is like, yeah, whatever. Call me bitter. That's her name. Call me bitter now. God's given up on me. And Ruth's like, no, I'm going I'm to cling to you and the God that you're struggling to believe in. And then a kinsman redeemer sweeps her off her feet, much like the kinsman redeemer, Jesus. Ruth is a Moabitess, um, a tribe that was known for being evil outsiders outside of the promises of God. So we've got these three women that embody that God is working through sinful humanity like you and me. We can start to think, my family is too messed up. My sin is too evil. My life is too wicked. My habits are too broken. And we forget that God is in the business of redeeming sinful humanity and saying, I'm going to work through you. I'm going to work in spite of your sin. I grabbed a picture here of one of my favorite Christmas movies, I think. Do you have that picture? That's uh, Ralphie beating up the bully in a Christmas story. Now, I'm not recommended recommending fistfights and beating people up and everything, but it's a great scene of someone who's an underdog getting bullied and bullied and bullied, and he can't take it anymore, and finally he fights back. Finally, he fights back. Well, we'd like to place ourselves in that story, right? We want to see ourselves as the underdog that's weak and makes the wrong decision, but then in our own strength, we finally overcome, right? That's the hero story we want. Well, the book of Genesis, the line of Abraham says, yes, humanity, you have been weak. You have been bullied by sin and evil and you will overcome, but you know how you're going to overcome? You're going to overcome by God working through you. It's God's power to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we see that so clearly in the promises made to Abraham. God just shows Abraham again and again. Just so you know, Abraham, 
I'm going to bless your uh, reproduction and you're going to have children that are going to bless the whole world, but I'm going to do it in such a way that you're sure that it's God and not Abraham, right? Read the stories of Abraham. It's the, the children of promise, right? And even better is the, is the covenant that God makes with Abraham where God knocks Abraham out. And he says, here's the covenant. I'm going to come through these split parts of the covenant ceremony and you're going to be on the side. You're not going to participate. You're just going to be like semi-conscious. What's going on? And God is showing that he is the one that fulfills the covenant. God is saying through that covenant, Abraham, I will keep my part of the covenant. And you know what else, Abraham? I will keep your part of the covenant. So that's the promise we have that a child will defeat evil. So what does that look like in our own life? Number one, does your family tree look anything like Jesus' family tree? That's encouraging for me. I know I wrestle with shame and regret because of sins in my own life and sins in the lives of my family, right? We can, we can have this sense of shame like, I'm too broken, God can't use me. But because God works despite our sin, because it's God's power to will and to work for his good pleasure, we can trust that he will defeat evil. He will use us. So hope that Jesus is that promised child that really has defeated sin and death by his death for our sins and by his resurrection to beat death once and for all. He has crushed the head of the serpent. Imagine the image from that movie, The Passion of the Christ. Jesus is praying in the garden. He sees a snake and he stomps on its head. It's poetic license in the movie, but it's an image of what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. Jesus is the promised child that has crushed evil once and for all. Because of that, then we can take part in the further crushing of evil in the here and now, right? We take hope that Jesus is the champion and then we run in his train, right? We run behind him, continuing to finish what he started, to share the good news of what Jesus has done. So keep reading your Bible and sharing the truth, the hope that you find in that Bible with others, that God for you, by his grace, has defeated sin and death once and for all. Also, keep praying for and serving your own household. Uh, depending on your level of quarantine or how much you're in and out of society, some of you are just kind of sick of your household at this point, right? Continue serving, continue loving, because you know ultimately Jesus has won the battle for you, so you can take next steps. You can do the next right thing, praying for and serving your roommates, your family, your neighbors. Keep romancing your spouse. Keep going. Keep pushing back evil in the world. Keep delighting in your children. Keep loving the people that you work with because you know that evil has been defeated once and for all through Jesus. The next thing that we're going to see is that we have hope for the kingdom of glory. We all long for this kingdom of glory. Um, This is why we love superhero movies. This is why we love fantasy novels because we love to fantasize and imagine about this reign of glory, this leader who establishes peace and justice in the second section in verses 6 through 11 talks about Jesus in verse 6 says Jesse's the father of David the king and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah Solomon the father of Rehoboam and Rehoboam the father of Abijah Abijah the father of Asaph so we get in one uh, little section a glimpse of the glory of the kingdom of David and Solomon 
the glory days of the people of Israel. Like this was the peak of their civilization. They'd conquered all these people. They had all this wealth, gold temples and palaces, this incredible reign of glory. And yet in those same verses, we're like, oh yeah, Uriah's wife. David murdered him and took his wife, remember? (laughs) And then that son was Solomon. And oh yeah, Solomon's son was Rehoboam. He was a loser. Solomon made a lot of mistakes. And so there's this, this glory and brokenness. And it's what we all have as human beings, right? Again, remember our purpose in Genesis is laid out in the very beginning. Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. We are made as human beings to rule and reign. We're made to be kings and queens of creation. And we've got this glory in us because we're made in the image of God, but that glory is broken because of our sin. We've turned from our design. And so we look at the stories of David and we look at the stories of Solomon and we see simultaneously this glory of this great kingdom and yet the failure and the sin. And we see a reflection of ourselves. Uh, There's this great, I think it's Aesop's Fables, I can't remember uh, who wrote the story, but the emperor's new clothes. Anybody know? Where did that come from? Like German fairy tale? Anyway, it's an old story, the emperor's new clothes. The idea is this guy tricks the emperor that he has this magic cloth that nobody but the like most noble, smart people can see. So the emperor pretends that he can see it, even though there's nothing there. So this guy fakes the emperor out because of the emperor's own pride, and he weaves this cloth that's supposed to be so beautiful, and everybody else tries to go along with it because they don't want to be left out. They want to pretend they see the amazing cloth that only amazing people can see. And so the emperor is parading in his new outfit, which is basically just his, his underwear. And this little boy is like, hey, the emperor has no clothes, right? The little boy is the one innocent child willing to point it out and go, there's something wrong with this picture. Well, a lot of you probably feel that way when you're reading your Bible. You're like, wait, I thought I was supposed to imitate everybody in the Bible. And you read these stories and you're like, they, they did some bad things, right? We are to imitate their faith in God, not their disobedience to God. The characters of the Bible are just like us, a mix of good and bad. And when your children imitate you, you want them to imitate the good things you do, and then you're like, but don't do the bad, stupid thing I did. Don't do that, right? And then you're like, you know what? Really, the most important thing that I want you to imitate is that I trust Jesus. I don't trust all the decisions I've made. I don't trust that I'm doing the right thing. I don't trust that I'm a great leader, a great husband, or a great um, preacher, or great anything. I trust that Jesus is my only hope. And so when we look at the stories of the kings and the leaders of Scripture, this is what it should remind us of. All human beings are a mix of glory, but also brokenness that requires the true king of glory to mend it. All leaders, the book of Judges is a horrible example of this. The kings like David and Solomon. All of these leaders failed to rule fully with the glory of God, failed to fully live up to everything that God had made them for. And so again, we get this teaser. We get this like almost fulfillment and then we recognize it's fallen short and only Jesus can fulfill what we're longing for. We hope in the gospel that Jesus is the ultimate son of David. He's the ultimate king we've been waiting for. That's a title that you'll see again and again throughout the scriptures. Even in random places, the letters of Paul, it'll be like, he's the son of David we've been waiting for. Jesus is that king. Jesus is the king that fulfills all of our hopes of a kingdom of glory. And this frees us to neither give up 
in despair nor take pride in our own ability, right? Apart from the gospel of Jesus saving us, we're either going to despair and say, forget it, just drink ourselves to death, or we're going to take pride and say, no, I can do it. Every other human has failed, but I'll win, right? And then when you make a mistake, you have to lie about it because your whole hope is in yourself. And those are the two ways that humanity goes, despairing or pride. And here in this text, it reminds us, you know what? Yeah, all human beings are glorious and broken, and we're longing for the day that Jesus will fill all our hopes and all our dreams, and the reign of glory will be established through him. So that enables us to lead with confidence and humility all at the same time. True believers will simultaneously be condemned from both sides, right? Um, One of the things that encourages me uh, as, I don't know if you know this, but in our age of divisiveness, pastors are coming under more public attack than ever before. I've gotten more hate mail in the last nine months than I ever had in the previous 25 years of ministry. And what's encouraging is I get attacked from both sides, (laughs) right? And I think that should be your goal as well. You should have some people attacking you for being overly confident and some people attacking you for being overly humble. The gospel produces this paradox in our lives that we all struggle through where we actually have some confidence, God loves me so I can do this. And we actually have some humility. Yeah, I I keep messing things up. I need God's grace and forgiveness. And I'm gonna move forward only because he has forgiven me. And we have to continue to walk in that paradox of both confidence and humility because we trust our king and we just do the next right thing. Pardon the rhyme there. We trust our king and we just do the next right thing, right? We're trusting him, and then we're stepping out in faith. All right, God, I'm going to do the next thing I see that you've asked me to do. I'm not trusting in me. I'm just doing the next thing you tell me to do. We trust our king and do the next right thing. We're also free to serve. This was something that Jesus talked about with his disciples. He was kind of training them to be the next you know, leadership of this new kingdom he was establishing, and they're like, they're like, okay, Jesus, you know, what kind of office? Will we have corner offices and how great will we be? And, you know, who's the greatest of us? Will you tell us, you know, will you rank us? Who's going to be your prime minister? And Jesus was like, no, 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 no. This is how you're going to lead. If you want to be first, serve. Do you aspire to greatness? Then wash someone's feet. Do you want to be someone amazing? Then serve the people next to you. Then stoop like our Savior did. Those are the next things that we do. If we want to bring in Jesus' kingdom of glory. Colossians 3.23 says it this way. Whatever your work is, whether you're working for a frustrating boss or whoever you might be working with, do it heartily. Do it with all you've got as unto the Lord, not for men. You're not doing it to please people. You're doing it to please Jesus. As we do that, then we will be bringing in more and more God's kingdom of glory in the here and now. Finally, we have a hope for the end of exile. We have a hope for the end of exile. We see this in the last section. In the ESV, it talks about deportation. Other translations say exile. Um, Because of the Jews' sin, because of Israel's sin, they were exiled into Babylon, then they were returned. We talked about this in Daniel. There was a preliminary return to Jerusalem, a rebuilding of the temple. But there's also ongoing sin and brokenness. And so the angel prophesied to Daniel that there would be a kind of return after 70 years, but the ultimate return was 70 times 7, right? And that lines up with the birth of Jesus. And so then the New Testament takes that and says, yeah, the ultimate return is found by faith in Jesus. 
our return from exile is found by trusting Jesus. And we're now living between the return that we have promised in Jesus and the future where it's all finished. And he wipes away every tear from our eyes. The new heavens and the new earth. So 1 Peter 2 says we're spiritual exiles. We should live a holy life looking forward to that return. Philippians 3 says we're citizens of heaven and we're awaiting our Savior to return. We're like ambassadors. We're like diplomats. We're pilgrims passing through. This is not our true home. If anything, 2020 has taught us, I think, that's one of the, been the most beautiful lessons. Like, okay, this world is messed up, right? That's the benefit of a really terrible year is you are more able to remember that heaven is your true home. And that's what we are longing for. Now, if you remember that heaven is your true home, what does that translate into? What that means is that you actually make the place of exile more of a home for other people. Isn't that an amazing paradox? The New Testament uses this word hospitality. It literally means the love of strangers. So the New Testament keeps saying, remember, you're strangers, and this is not your true home. But Jesus has made you family. So you have this spiritual family in Jesus that enables you to be a hospitable stranger, a hospitable exile in this world. So this world is not our true home, but we're going to show hospitality and kindness to each other. We're going to show what true home looks like. We're going to give each other a taste of home. I grabbed a picture of a welcome mat. Our college kids have come home this weekend. One of the blessings of COVID is they just cut you know, their semester short. They're not going back for finals after Thanksgiving. They're just staying home for a longer break, which is awesome for us. might be a little harder on the college kids, but it's awesome for us. We have them home for a longer period of time. Well, for Christians... Our job is to simultaneously remember, this is not my true home. My true home's in heaven, but I've given, been given everything I need in Jesus. So what does that do? That gives me a fullness by which I can extend home to other strangers, other pilgrims, other wanderers. What are some next steps of hospitality that you can take for others? Are there alone people that you know of that you need to call, encourage, and pray for? Is there someone you need to have over for a socially distanced, you know, picnic table meal or whatever is appropriate in your situation. What are some ways that you can bless others in this world of wandering? None of us are really home, but if you know Jesus, you know true home. You've gotten the return from exile. Well, I want to wrap up again, just thinking about this long silence. The idea that we're meditating on is the hope that the advent, the birth of Jesus brought at this time in history. From Malachi to Matthew, it's a 400 and I think it's 27 year gap, a 400 year gap of silence. What's really interesting is to go back and read Malachi and to look at the promises that Malachi Malachi declares. Malachi is the one that says, hey, there's going to be a messenger that's going to come and prepare the way for Yahweh for the God of the Old Testament to come. That messenger the New Testament tells us is John the Baptist, who prepares the way for the one to come for the day of the Lord. And it didn't come like they thought it would come. The day of the Lord was much more patient and much more gracious. The day of the Lord began with Jesus, and it's going to end whenever he returns. So Malachi promises that the day of the Lord is coming. 
But those of us that hope in the grace and forgiveness of Jesus don't have to worry. We found hope in Jesus. Forgiveness of our sins, eternal life, true home. We have all of that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate at Christmas time. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that you love us. And we see that most clearly in Jesus. Your disciples would say, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We often say, God, I wish you would speak to us. And Hebrews 1 says, you've spoken in many ways through many Old Testament prophets, but in these last days you speak through your Son. So God, help us to slow down during this Advent season to celebrate you, to listen to your voice, to meditate on the wonder of a Jesus who came for us. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.